Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. I once attended a funeral in a mainline denomination where the pastor stated that we really can't know what heaven is like. That surprised me because the Bible is full of information about heaven, especially these last two chapters in God's book to us, the Bible. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, that he was caught up to the third heaven, into paradise, and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Pretty much every scholar will tell you that Paul was caught up into God's heaven, God's heaven right now. But he was caught up into God's heaven, and he called it the third heaven. And then Isaiah shares his experience in heaven in Isaiah 6 when he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And then it goes on to explain all the other views that he saw there. Somehow he saw heaven. And of course, John has seen several glimpses into heaven as it is now in the book of Revelation. How can people say that we don't know what heaven is like? We can. We just need to search it out like all the other wonderful gems of God's word. It looks to me like God wanted his final words to us to prepare us for our eternal home because his final words are all about heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. I think maybe it's so that we can focus on living with that hope of being with Jesus forever. Because if that's our motivating factor, our attitudes and our lifestyles will change. I'm Debbie Blank, continuing our study with you on our eternal home in the new heaven, earth, and new Jerusalem. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. What's your idea of what heaven is like? There are a lot of people who don't think of heaven as a real place with a real location. They simply think of it as a state of mind. But last week, and continuing this week in Revelation 21, we experienced the grand tour of the New Jerusalem. With all its glory and dazzling supernatural beauty, it may be hard to take it all in at first. But especially this week, we will see that it is also a very real place with a very real location. It literally takes shape and form before our eyes. So, if you want to know something about what the eternal heaven will be like, stay with us today. We're going to go back and start in Revelation 21, verse 1, and just run through this quickly, because we only got through four verses last week explaining heaven, and we've got a lot more to tell you about. We're told that the heaven, the eternal heaven, is a new heaven and a new earth, and that there's a holy city called the New Jerusalem, which is all part of this. Now, when it says new, that means nothing like this has ever been seen before, ever. So it's not the old earth renewed or regenerated. This is completely, totally different. We talked about last week how the reason for that is because this earth is corrupt and people are corrupt with sin. So God has to give us something brand new that has never been tainted by the likes of sin or evil. We also learn that God's going to dwell with us. He's going to dwell among his people and that all the bad things are going to be gone, like tears and death and pain and crying. They've all passed away in this new heaven. 
so we can look forward to eternity with Jesus Christ reigning with God the Father in this new earth like nothing we've ever seen before. People often compare things in this earth like saying, this is a little slice of heaven. Well, trust me, whatever we see on this earth is nothing compared to heaven. Our eternal home is going to so far surpass the very best of what we see or do or have here on earth by millions times millions. So it's something I'm really looking forward to. And as we follow along with the description of what all of this is supposed to look like, we're going to hear descriptions of things that actually we have never seen before and we won't see until we get there. So the writer is doing his very best to explain what he's seeing as John translates for us what he sees in this vision. And he starts here now in chapter 21, verse 5 of Revelation by saying, And he, this is God the Father, who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So that's a reiteration from what we saw in verse 1. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Oh, you'll recall that when Jesus returned, he was called faithful and true because he is perfect. Heaven is perfect. God is perfect. His words are perfect. And what he's saying here is everything he's telling us is faithful. It will come about. And it's true. It's right. It's righteous. And we can believe God in what he's saying. In verse 6, he reminds us when he says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. When he says it is done, we've seen that two other times in Scripture. One was in John nineteen thirteen, when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. It is done. In other words, he has now conquered sin, satisfied God's wrath for sin, and opened the door for us to have eternity with Christ. That was the first place. The second place is in Revelation, chapter 16, verse 17, with the seventh bowl judgment. What Jesus was saying is the wrath of God is poured out on this evil world. He has completed the pouring out of that wrath. It is finished. God's judgment has been complete on sin. So he was satisfied with the payment for sin when it was done with Christ on the cross. And then in Revelation, he's satisfied now that sin has been paid for by the wrath of God poured out on an unbelieving world. And now we're reminded in verse 6, it's done. Everything's over. It's passed. It's gone. Everything is brand new. And when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it's just his way of reminding us. He was there at the beginning when it was perfect. He's here at the end when it's perfect because God is forever. And we can trust in everything he tells us. And this is why when you read Revelation and you've read Genesis, they're perfect bookends for each other. That's because he is the Alpha and the Omega, and things are going to come full circle in his perfect plan. And he talks in here in verse 6, too, about the springs of water of life. It says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life. We might remember that passage where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he told her there that if you believe in me, I will give you living water. And she wanted it so she didn't have to go back to the well because she didn't understand what he was saying at first. Jesus is the living water. 
In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6, we're reminded of that. That passage reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It will never perish. It's undefiled, no sin, no corruption, no death, no wrong. It will not fade away. Again, it's eternal. And it's reserved in heaven for those of us who believe. I've got a reservation in heaven, and that reservation can't be canceled. We can cancel a dinner reservation or a hotel reservation, but this reservation was made by God with us, and God never goes back on his word. It finishes up in 1 Peter 1, in verse 5, when it says, this is reserved in heaven for us. So those of us who are the us, it says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice. So how do we have that reservation? It's by the power of God through faith for salvation. And that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. All of that's going to be seen when we go to eternal heaven. You know, there's echoes of other scripture in here as we're just reading verse 6. When you talked about thirsting and the many times that he's talked about those who hunger and thirst. I'm thinking of the Beatitudes now. That blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And then as we look into the next verse, it talks about the overcomers. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I'm just going to stop right there and just think of the inheritance that's been promised to those who follow Jesus Christ. And now we're talking about those things that are inherited, those things that are promised to those who put their faith and trust in him. So who inherits something? An heir. Romans 8, 16 and 17 tells us that we are heirs, heirs to God's kingdom. You and I will not be disowned. Once we have committed our lives to Jesus Christ, we are heirs for eternity. So we have everything that God has. Remember that God is coming down and reigning with his people, dwelling among his people here. He's with us. We're with him. So we have everything that he has because he's brought everything he has into this new Jerusalem. Wow, is that going to be great? And it's only for those who've overcome. Overcoming means victory. And the victory that we have is faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, when it says in the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The victory is in his son. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son of God does not have the life. There's two options that we have, and we can only be victorious if we fight the good fight by believing in our hearts, not just with our heads and our minds, that Jesus is God and died for our sins and then rose to conquer death. If we do that, we inherit eternal life. We inherit all these things because we are overcomers. In verse 7, it talks about how he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I was just struck by how many times throughout Scripture God expresses that desire, I will be their God, and they will be my people, just over and over again throughout Scripture, that strong desire of God to be there dwelling with his people. And then in verse 8, there's a contrast 
because we are overcomers. But guess what? There's those who are not overcomers. They will not be in heaven. In case we forgot, there are two different eternal places. One's heaven and one's hell. In verse 8, it tells us who's going to be in hell. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, that's the key right there, unbelieving, and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We read in Revelation 20 about the second death, how the first death is our physical death, and everyone will die a physical death unless we're here for the rapture. But then there's a second death, and that second death is an eternal death. It's for those people who turn away from Jesus Christ, or maybe I should say more appropriately, those people who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because there's a lot of good people out there who do a lot of wonderful things and have great hearts and help other people, but they haven't committed their lives to Jesus Christ. They will go into eternal hell because it says in this passage that those who are unbelieving, those who do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of our sins, they will not go into heaven. They'll go into the second death. So it's not just a matter of being a good person. That's not going to get you to heaven. Romans 4 tells us that our good deeds don't get us into heaven. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. Following the law doesn't get us into heaven. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Following our rituals or religion doesn't get us into heaven. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can get into heaven. That's why God reminds us here that we've got this wonderful heaven. But be careful because there's a place outside of heaven where people will be who do not believe in Jesus Christ. You did hit on it when you said believe. The difference between those people who committed those terrible sins and us who are also sinners is that we had that faith in Christ, that we could become overcomers through the power of his blood shed for us, that we take advantage of that forgiveness. So there are people who wanted to be forgiven and did what they needed to do to access that relationship with Jesus Christ, and there are others that just didn't do that. So that's the difference is that belief. So as we see in verse 9, a little bit of change of direction, something that is there for those who have overcome and believed, we see an angel that was one of the angels that gave one of the seven plagues out in a previous chapter, now is directing John to a much more pleasant scene. Before we move on to that, I want to continue to talk a little bit about this eternal hell, this hell, this place that's going to be apart from heaven, outside of heaven. From scripture, it's called the lake of fire, Gehenna. It's going to be a place that's fiery. It has an unquenchable fire even. It's better for the body parts to perish than for the whole body to go into eternal hell, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Jesus reminds us that we need to fear him who's able to destroy the soul and body in hell. If we turn away from Jesus, we will be destroyed in hell. It's described, too, as the place where the worm never dies, the fire is never quenched, and the tongue is never quenched. And that's in Mark 9 and James chapter 3. Matter of fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven because he didn't want people to go there. It's described as a furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now just imagine this all the time, 100% of the time, you're weeping. In heaven, there's no more crying. 
inhale this gnashing of the teeth. Oh, why did I do that? Kind of an attitude. Why did I turn away from God? And there won't be a second chance because Matthew 25, 46 says it's eternal punishment. Second Thessalonians says it's eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Never, ever, ever, ever be able to see God. Only Satan and all those evil people that are living in hell with those who are there. It's black darkness. Now, if we recall, one of the plagues in Revelation was darkness and how people were dying and wanting to die because of it. I don't know how you can have a fiery furnace and lots of fire and darkness, but it's God. He's the one that's allowed this because he wants people to realize that according to Revelation 20, they are tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the consequence for turning away from God. That's the consequence of not submitting your life to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God tells us about heaven and hell throughout his word because it's in this life that we make a decision which direction we're going to go. If we're going to follow Jesus, make him Lord of our lives, live for him day by day, serve him and spend eternity with him, or if we're going to be like the Israelites did in the Old Testament where we have our idols that we follow instead of God. Now, we don't usually have little dolls that we look to, but we have our idols of power and money and sex and all those greedy things that we want, that we do, that are not only against God, but in his word, he calls them sin, just as he has here in Revelation 21.8. Now, as you mentioned, we're going to go on to Revelation 21.9, and we're going to see a little bit more about this new Jerusalem and the positive aspects of heaven rather than negative aspects of hell. So we have the contrast of the people who followed the harlot in Revelation 17, and now we contrast them with the people who are going to be able to be part of the new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ in Revelation 21, verse 9. And let's read that. It says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, whose brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. I just love this. As I look at it, it reminds me of verses one and two, where he talks there about the bride being the new Jerusalem and the wife of the lamb and coming down from a very high mountain. And I think that was only nine verses ago. Why is God reiterating this to us? Did he forget? No, God never forgets anything. He's trying to put this image in our head so we will understand it. That the city that's coming down, who is as a bride, we're told in verse 2, so it isn't really a bride, the city can't be a bride, but it's as a bride because it contains the bride of Christ. The city is taken on the characteristics of its inhabitants, the inhabitants being the believers in Jesus Christ. And God sees always his believers in Christ as being the bride of Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to the end of chapter. We saw it in Revelation 19. We are the bride of Christ, adorned for him like at a wedding. So he is looking forward 
to us and being with us in this eternal heaven. You might say consummating the marriage here where we are now forever and ever with him, never to leave him, never to have any temptation or any sin or any crying. The bride of Christ, as we've talked about from Revelation 19, 7 and 8 in the past says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We know there that the bride of Christ is the one who has righteous acts. And a righteousness is symbolic or equated actually to the word belief. And that means that we can only be righteous if we believe in Jesus Christ. And remember, believing in Jesus Christ is not simply head knowledge. I grew up learning all about who Jesus was, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, you know, his life and all those things that we pretty much know about Jesus. I knew that before in my head. But I didn't know Jesus experientially until I surrendered my life to him as the Lord and Savior of my life, believing not just what I had heard in my head, but surrendering to him in my heart, repenting and recognizing that I can't get into heaven with head knowledge. It has to be a surrendered heart. And when I did that, I became the bride of Christ, along with all those others who've made the same decision that I have. I was given the fine linen which are the righteous acts of the saints. And I am guaranteed as an heir of Jesus Christ to be in heaven with him in this new Jerusalem. And then when John says he carried me away in the spirit, well, that's not unusual because he says that elsewhere in Revelation, how the spirit took in different places to show him things. But it is interesting that it's almost the exact wording that we see in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse two, when that is describing the millennial kingdom and the city and the temple of the millennial kingdom. But this is not discussing that millennial kingdom because that was heaven on earth. This is going to be new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and it comes down out of heaven. The millennial kingdom doesn't, and it has the glory of God. Wow. The glory of God is in this. So brilliant was the glory of God that it was like a costly stone. What is that glory of God? When we think of God's glory, we think of the Shekinah glory of God, but that word is never mentioned in scripture. Glory is doxa in the Greek. It means the splendor, the holiness, the majesty of God. And basically God's glory is associated with a person experiencing God's presence in a tangible way. So those of us who get to see God's glory also get to have the glory of God with us in his kingdom. Now think back to the glory of God. We first saw it in the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verse 34, when we were told that a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later, we saw the glory of the Lord in 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11 with the temple. In that passage, it tells us that it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Well, now guess what? We are the house of the Lord. This new Jerusalem is the house of the Lord where we have every aspect of God's glory in this house. And so much so that it's like a stone of crystal clear jasper. That really is like a diamond. Now, if you look at a diamond under the right lights 
You can see all these amazing facets of light and purity when you look at a diamond. That's what we see here in this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. As we read about the new Jerusalem here in verse 9, we think, well, I've never heard of a new Jerusalem before. Yes, we actually have in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In that passage, we see that there is a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, and who's in it? It's the church and God and Jesus and the angels. We're there in this new Jerusalem. So the jewels and the brilliance of the glory of God combined together has to be so dazzling. It's a good thing we have brand new bodies to be able to see this because I don't think we would be able to stand it. The glory of God magnified with all of these facets of these stones that we're about to hear more about. But we're also going to hear about the structure of this city, and it has a structure and very definite things that are symbolic and structural as we go into the next verses. Well, we are running out of time again, so we're going to have to wait and discuss the look of the holy city until we meet again next week. Now, let me just tell you, though, that God is a very detailed God. He gives us lots of information regarding numbers in the book of Numbers. He gives us lots of genealogy in the book of Genesis. He gives us all the specific details of the tabernacle in Exodus, first of how it's to be made, and then how it was made. In Chronicles, he tells us exactly how the temple is supposed to be built. And I often wonder, why? Why did he give us all the details of the sacrifices for the Jews in the Old Testament when they don't pertain to us today? But it's because God was a very exacting God, and everything that he details out He details out in showing something that points to Jesus Christ. And he wants us to understand that he wants the laws that he's given us to be followed. He wants the direction that he gives us to be followed. It's important to him. Details are important to him. And as we read these last 16 verses in Revelation 21, he gives us so much detail on what this new Jerusalem looks like. You're going to think, wow, what good does that do me? What can I make towards application here? There's a lot. You'll have to wait until next week to hear about it. But let me finish by telling you that 73% of adult Americans believe in heaven, according to a Barner survey, and 62% believe in hell. Fascinating to me because if 73% of adult Americans believe in heaven, why are they not living like that? Why are they not living for what they believe? After all, if heaven exists and God says it does, and we've just read about it, shouldn't people want to know how they can get there, and what they should do here on earth to be prepared for eternity? I would think so. After all, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So if we truly love Jesus, we should be living for him now, not just waiting for eternity. Now is the time, as Paul said, to live is Christ. Will you repent and turn to Jesus today? And if you've already done that, are you living for him 24-7? And are you willing to do that, wanting to do that? 
until the day he returns for you or you go to be with him? That's what he wants, because if we don't enjoy him here on earth, what makes us think we're going to enjoy him in heaven? Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.